Father, I just ask you to open our eyes to that passage again, familiar as it may be, and speak to us afresh from your word. Amen. Thanks, Tim, for reading that. I have no idea. You don't want to ask you. Tell me about that sometime. Um, just to reiterate uh, John's invitation to come back with us afterwards and uh, pull this apart. We, we did go back a couple of weeks ago to his house, and I don't know if you've noticed, has the universe got any better since two weeks ago? Because we put it right, more or less, didn't we, in that hour? And I'm a bit disappointed things have improved, but um, there you go. That was the kind of discussion we had. Um, my theme in these two talks has been to uh, throw out the idea there that, that what Jesus says in these stories is explosive. It's like a, a little kind of one of those um, bombs you see in children's cartoons you know, with, with a fuse lit on it. It kind of lobbed into the middle of your conception of what life is like, designed to explode it and throw it up in the air. Um, it's a slightly violent image, but it, it makes the point that he is trying to confront our worldview and turn it upside down. He does so in a loving way of telling us stories rather than condemning us and telling us all to pull our socks up. Um, and I, I had that slide, if you remember that, that cartoon picture, which, which you may remember. And um, we came across this story, which I've loved ever since I was a boy, um, the story of the um, and then two books in the last ten years have dramatically um, brought it back to life to me as a story that I, one of those ones I thought I knew and realised I didn't, hadn't read it properly. And my invitation to you is to go home and read Luke 15, preferably all of it, again, and see whether it speaks to you afresh, because Jesus' stories are like onions. And you peel off one layer, then there's another layer, then there's another layer, then there's another layer. And it may well be there's more in it for you. This is the most recent book I've read on it by a guy called Timothy Keller, a, a, a guy out of the U.S. Um, it's called The Prodigal God. Straight away, there's a Jesus tactic. Pick a, pick a provocative title. You know, right, what's that all about? Why is God the prodigal son, doesn't it? Prodigal God. It's, it's, it, you'll like this book because it's big print and spaced out. All right? And it's uh, only 120 odd pages. Um, and it's still priced like a big book. But it, it reads like a small book. So it makes you feel like you're doing something worthy because you spent eight quid on it. But um, that is a fantastic book. And some of the ideas that I've preached on are lifted, unapologized for that, um, straight out of that book. Context. Well, there are three statements in this book that I just want to lob in to see if they challenge you. The first one is this, that Jesus tells these stories not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. Okay? Little Jesus in a manger, that's gone, that's Christmas. Let's talk about what you can talk about. Second is this, it's not repentance that causes the Father's love, but rather the reverse. Father's love or repentance. And the third one, the harshest of all, I'll lob out there with some qualifications, that we should repent of all the reasons we ever did anything right. Why do we do right? Uh, my wrong thing. 
central point of this of this whole chapter, Luke 15, is this idea of lostness. That there are things out there which are lost, which somebody passionately cares about. There are three stories of which this is the third. Um, the first two are about a lost sheep and a lost coin. And there's a shepherd and there's a woman who search for these things diligently until they find them. And the third story is this one, which as Tim said is often called the story of the lost son, which is correct as it follows the lost coin and the lost sheep. But it tends to focus our, our eyes on one character in a story which has three characters. It's all about the, the, the story of the dad who wanders away, uh, blows all his money, and then repents of it. There's only one third of the picture, but it is the one we remember. I had an old director uh, in my previous job whose phrases have stuck with me ever since. Um, and one of them was, whenever you stood up to present anything, he'd stop you after two minutes, if you were lucky, and say, excuse me, Barry, what problem are you trying to solve? And you realise you just put a presentation that was designed to make you look good, but didn't actually solve anything or address any particular definable issue, just a, a statement of the world if you saw it. You'd say, I want to know what problem you're trying to solve, otherwise it's meeting over, come back to speak. And he meant it. And unless you could tell him, he were probably going to have a very difficult week. It's important to know what problem Jesus was trying to solve. I read a brilliant article um, a few weeks ago which, which grappled that. If you don't understand anything about why Jesus came, unless you really grasp this idea of lostness, people being free but lost, finding their way in world and, and, and in creation and so on, but having made a mess of it. That's the first thing. The whole chapter about lostness and somebody passionately caring about that. Secondly, it was told to an audience. If you go back to verse 1, if you've got a Bible in front of you, you'll see that it says, the tax collectors and inverted commas, sinners, were all gathering around for hearing. That means in, in, in language that you and I would understand, traitors, collaborators with the Romans, and prostitutes. Okay? These were the people that were most hated in their own society. The people who'd sold out to the Romans, people who had abandoned the faith and were living moral lives. These were the lowest of the low. But there's also another group of people, verse 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in that context, Jesus teaches about lostness. And his primary audience, not the people who were gathered around him because they liked what he had to say, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's the audience. Thirdly, it's just a little bit of context about the society to which this story was told. If you read um, both this book by Timothy Keller and another famous one by Omri Nouwen, um, some of you may know him. Um, it's a very famous book called Story of the Prodigal Son. It's got a picture of the Rembrandt painting 
of the prodigal son on the front. Bit of a classic. And in it, he recounts um, a story of a man who spent 20 years of his life I've suddenly gone very Mount Sinai, Andrew. Can you kind of speak to me a bit? That's great. Um, I felt like I was giving the Ten Commandments out there for a minute. Um, a man who spent 20 years of his life researching this parable in the Middle East, in the modern near Middle East. So North Africa um, uh, was now Israel and so on, that kind of society. And in those 20 years, he never found a single person that he talked to who would admit who would admit that this could ever happen. It would never happen that a younger son in any family that had any sense of community of honour would ask for his inheritance before his father had died. This story would never happen because the offence is so extreme. To go to your father and say, give me my share now, means I wish you were dead. That's what it meant. And if you don't get that, you don't really understand how offensive this story is. I wish you were dead. And that is what Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law about human rebellion. And contrasted to that is the nature of the Father. The most significant point in the whole story, because prodigal, as we've come to call it, means spendthrift, not sinful. It means to take what you have and splash it out till you've got nothing left. It doesn't mean wicked or bad, although often when people do that, they do do things which are not particularly virtuous. Um, the, the, the younger son here reminds me of George Best. Remember what he said about his money? He said 85% of it are spent on wine, women and gambling, and the rest are just wasted. Um, you know, and that's the sort of life that this, this guy has, has led. Well, Timothy Keller points out that actually the prodigal one in this story is the father. He gives away everything. He gives away his honor in the eyes of the rest of society, because accepting the son back is also a disgrace. He risks alienating his other son because of the nature of forgiveness he offers and he's risked all that emotional cost all his life, all the time that the son was away, and pours it out in this lavish expression of love. Let's look at that first provocative statement, that Jesus did not come to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. The great accusation to Jesus is that he's eating and talking with sinners. When you ate with somebody in this society, in Jesus' society, you affirm them. You say, I'm your friend. I associate with you. To eat with someone was significant. Um, the, the book of Galatians is all about that because uh, Paul and Peter had fallen out about whether to eat with Gentile Christians. That's what that's the basis of the whole book. The Pharisees and teachers hated what he was doing. Um, we have to understand that the listeners to this story were not melted into tears or moved emotionally by this story of unconditional love. They were mortally offended, thunderstruck, and angry. What you're looking at here is not a scene out of It's a Wonderful Life, where everyone's kind of, you know, like that. 
I've just dismissed all of 1950s and 1940s American cinema, haven't I, with that, that kind of dissing remark. Um, no one grabbed a handheld microphone and say, let's hear it for Jesus. Thank you for that. It didn't do that. When Jesus says the same thing in chapter 4 about uh, the idea of the kingdom being there for those who weren't in it, they try and kill him. And the story moves on from this, from parable to miracle, parable to miracle, up to the cleansing of the temple, and then to the crucifixion. This is the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. He was offending one group of people, two men. Not through condemnation, but through a message of forgiveness. Many people hated him for what he said. And what this story does is teach not that sin is okay. The younger brother is a fool. He does live a foolish life. But that the major consequences of sin are on him and on the way he alienates us from God. And it's the alienation from God that is the issue, not the breaking of rule. And what this story shows is that there are two types of lostness. Remember that, that's the theme of, of the chapter. Firstly, the way of the wayward sinner, the younger son, who needs to discover the truth the hard way, which many of us are like that. But there's this huge other category of person, the earner, the one who believes in him, himself, and in his righteous works, and in his own self-righteousness. And that in some way, that is what earns approval from God, being good. That's the elder brother. That leads me to this second point, which is that it is not repentance that causes God to love us. It's God's love for us that causes us to repent the other way around. Jesus is actually redefining what sin is in this story. He's saying it's not just about doing things wrong. And that these, these two different methods of, of finding God's favor are described by Keller as the self-discovery method, which is the younger son. I'm going to learn, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to find out what life is all about by going out there and just trying it out. And to actually, there's a bit of us that says, yeah, that's a good thing. But we encourage our children to do in a way, isn't it? We, we like them to, to grow up, to go and try things um, and learn for themselves. It, it's an issue of taking your life in your own hands and, and learning um, through experience. And there is some good in it. In, but ultimately, you find yourself lost because there are too many mistakes to be made and too many sort of landmines to step on. But the second way may have escaped your notice if you've never really read this story or its context. And it's what Keller calls the moral conformity method. And what that says is this, I will gain approval both from God and from others by simply following the rules, doing no wrong, accumulating more and more merit for myself. I'm going to do the right things, even if it's for the wrong reasons. And everything I do, actually, however notable, is ultimately centered on me, even the good things I do. And Jesus' point here is there is some good in that, too. But ultimately, you find yourself lost. Both methods have self-sovereignty at the center 
They both have them, me, myself, I, in the words of the song, at the middle of that universe. It's either my desire to discover through um, this journey of, of, of experimentation or my desire to be affirmed through following rules that I perceive that have been set. Some people do both. And that's where you have secret life. They follow the rules outwardly, but somewhere over here there's a secret double life, which is fulfilling the desires of the younger son. You get that. There's that kind of little outlet of rebellion that a lot of us need. We're trying to get approval one way and the other way at the same time. And that leads to tension and deceit and um, deceiving others and deceiving ourselves and a distance from God because we never feel good about ourselves. And the key figure in this story, I think, is the elder son, not so much the younger. It's always told about the younger son. He's always the, he's given it its title. It's the elder son's attitude that interests me and which frightens me. Because I can see in him so much of me. And I suspect there are a lot of other people too. I doubt that I'm the only one. And having redefined sin, Jesus also redefines God's love and says, and points out that in each case, it is the Father initiating forgiveness. He looks for the Son. He sees him coming. He runs towards him. I don't know if any other passage in the Bible has God running. Maybe, maybe there. And then he overwhelms the Son, the younger Son, by this lavish outpouring of generosity and forgiveness and doesn't even let him finish his speech. Can you imagine how many times the younger Son has rehearsed that speech on the walk home? I'm not worthy to be your son. I've sinned against you and against God. Blah, 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 blah. I've got to get this right. A bit like Hugh Grant in the wedding. You know, I wanted to get that just right. And, and it, that doesn't even listen. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring the coat. Kill the fatic path. Welcome him home. He never, you read verse 21, he never gets to say the speech. But the eldest son reacts in a very, very different way. And this is quote three, where, where Keller says, we must repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Which I thought was a wild statement when I read that. I thought, it's a harsh statement, that's grabbed my attention. He's not saying stop doing things right, but examine the heart behind the motive, behind the action, and ask yourself, where is my faith really being put? Am I really doing this to please God, or do I want other people's approval? But let me speak for myself, because that's the only person I've ever been, so far as I can remember. Um, I am actually an elder brother. I am the elder one of two brothers, um, both literally and figuratively, I think. I do right things, and I do wrong things. The wrong things I do have their place in my human condition. I, I recognize that. But when I do right things, I'm also aware that there is a mixture of reasons why I do them. There is this moral conformity model in what I do. Part of me does good things because I really think they're good, they're right, and they help. And there is nothing in this story that suggests anyone should stop doing 
right things. But I'm not wholly awful, really, trust me. But it also includes this, my hidden self, wanting others to see or know I've done a good thing. Doing good things in secret feels a wasted opportunity. Wanting to feel as a little chuckle of affirmation there. Thank you, that's why, that's why I said it. Wanting to feel good inside about myself and not guilty. Despite everything that God says about how I'm forgiven. And worse still, trying to impress God and buy favours from him, which is wholly pagan. That is completely against the biblical picture of God. Wanting to have a story to tell to other people we can dine out on. Sermon fodder. Worried about my balance sheet with God, the good versus the bad. There's a Catholic in all of us, isn't there? No, that's that's um, that's an old way of thinking about salvation. I even want you to really like this talk, you know, and all sorts of other motives. And it's reality. What's the bottom line? What does this mean for us? The story is about being lost, and you can be lost in two ways: lost by rebellious, wayward. Um, Sinning, if you like to use the old-fashioned word, and a disregard for what God says about the right way to live. And some of us learn that the hard way, some of us see it fairly early and avoid it. And that's good, nothing wrong with that. But there is another way of slipping into legalistic righteousness, Paul calls it. Which is not a good reason for stopping doing good things, but is a thoroughly good reason for self-examination and saying, why do I do the things that I do? And is my faith really in me, the affirmation of others, or is it really in the loving heart of the Father? Am I trying to earn a birthright that I've already got? What the son, the elder son was trying to do for his whole life. And does it make me therefore judgmental and hard and unable to see the joy in other people being restored because somehow I think my inheritance is being eroded by them coming along? I think the story of the workers in the vineyard last week has a similar edge to it. It's kind of resentment at other people being included in the party. I found this quote by Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, who was a Catholic, I like Catholic, actually. Um, and he said this, The word good has many meanings. For example, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a range of 500 yards, I should call him a good shot. But not necessarily a good man. Illegalistic righteousness, blind obedience and religion shoots its own grandmother from 500 yards. What it does, it's good at, but it isn't necessarily a good thing. The central point here is to proclaim the overpowering love of the Father and for that to transform the way you live. Not to try and change the way you live in order to earn the love of God. One final point. There is a difference between the third story and the other two. 
the coin and the sheep, somebody goes out to look for the lost and bring them back. The, the, the woman sweeps the house and finds it. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and finds the lost. Nobody goes and looks for this lad, do they? The father waits for him to return. Nobody goes and fetches him. Whose job do you think that really was? father is old. He has to look after the property. Who didn't do their job? The elder son didn't do his job. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. The elder son in his self-righteousness didn't go and seek the lost. And that to me is a, is a challenge. I have to sort of gosh, sorry, that's, that's, I can see that in me. I'm so saved by grace and comfortable where I am that those who are outside don't get my due attention. And there is a perfect elder brother not in the story, and that's because he's telling it. The elder brother is Jesus. Not the one in the story, but the one we should see. The one who's prepared to give up everything for the sake of his lost brothers and sisters. And that's why central to everything we do at this church, whatever we think about community, social action, even social justice and doing good things in the community, is about Christ. It's about coming to Christ. Because that way we know the love of the Father, and that way it changes our life. This story is such an onion skin, we could be here all day. Well, if I could, we'd all have gone. But, um, and rightly so. So I'm going to stop there. I've lobbed enough of a hand grenade to your life for any Sunday. Um, let's stand.